Good morning, Shelton. My name is Danielle Galtieri, and I recently started serving on the facilities team here at Shelton. Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 4, 28 through 37. Daniel 4, 28 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is, this not, is not this great Babylon, which I have built my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the end of at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Danielle. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I'm wondering if you have been in a situation like this before where you uh, kind of open up your social media feed and you see that person who just did another post uh, about how kind of great their life is. This one is a photo of them on a stunning island beach. Another grand vacation. The last post was of one about how their kid just got a full-ride scholarship to that prestigious university. Um, and the one before that was about the addition they put on their house. Uh, that's, you know, three times the size of your house entirety um, because their spouse just got that unexpected promotion, you know, hashtag blessed, you know, all that good stuff. Um, they've got the perfect body, the perfect life. Their kids are amazing. You ever been there? Maybe you don't do social media but you know that person from the party or the gathering or whatever who just kind of always makes life, it's just kind of like this, this showcase of how grand and great their life is. Or it's in a Christmas letter or something. You, you, you hear it, you know who I'm talking about. And those posts, those conversations, they frustrate us. They irritate us. They actually more accurately anger us. You ever think why? Why do we hate them so much? Pride. 
But I'm actually not talking about the pride that may or may not be in the heart of that individual because the Lord will deal with them. Why those things hate, I hate them so much and they get under my skin is my pride. Don't I deserve that kind of experience? Why don't I get that kind of pleasure, that respect, that promotion, that vacation? Why don't that, why didn't that kind of stuff happen to me? Because it should. It's far easier to identify and it's far more comfortable to recognize the sin of pride in others rather than in ourselves. And so this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 4, God's going to offer an invitation for us to understand a little more deeply the beastly nature of pride. And he's inviting us to do what the, what the book of James chapter 4 says later on, which is to humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But I want us to think just for a moment before we dive into that chapter that was just a portion of it read for us. I want to think for a moment a little bit longer about pride. Because the more we can understand and see the destructive, sneaky, subtlety that is pride, the more likely we will be able to find ourselves in this morning's story. And most importantly, find ourselves in desperate need of the grace of Christ. So pride, by definition, is self-obsession. It's thinking of yourself first and most often and with most intensity. It's an overvaluing of yourself, your abilities, your control, your worth. It's an illusion, or it's kind of this fantasy world that we live in that comes with an attitude that effectively says, I rule, I reign, I'm in control of my world, this whole universe, effectively, and y'all would do best to get in line with what I would like. And that attitude gets expressed through our words and our actions. And sometimes it's really obvious. Right? You can all think of some like explicitly obvious demonstration of pride. Boastful words. Always making ourselves the hero of the story. Where we're not really actually listening to the other person. We're just kind of waiting for our moment to turn that story and that conversation to something about us. Or insisting that everyone do everything your way. And if it's not working, you're going to manipulate and control. Kind of muscle up to make it your way. Blowing up when someone gets in your way, slows you down or disagrees with you. Demanding a parade or a recognition for the things that you have done, right? We can all think of those obvious examples. But pride is such a beast because it can be so subtle and so sneaky. One pastor described pride as the carbon monoxide of sin, which means that it can silently and slowly kill you without you even knowing it. See, pride can be very subtle. You know, our tendency to complain and our reluctance to be thankful, that's pride. Because, I mean, if I deserve it, why would I say thanks for something that's rightfully mine? And I'm going to complain if it's not because I'm in control. I am the king. Pride can show itself in our in being intimidated by the gifts and the successes of others. It can show itself in the need to kind of always have the final word and make sure that we have the last say and kind of win that conversation or argument. Prayer can show its uh, lack of prayer shows the heart of pride. Pride says, I don't need anything. I got this. And prayer is exactly the opposite. It's an expression of dependence and neediness before God. When we fail to confess our sins and our failures to anyone else, that's an expression of pride. 
because I don't want anyone to see my weaknesses or my failures. I need them to think a certain way about me. When we always feel slighted or personally offended or we're defensive at every turn, it's pride. One of the most common ways for us to, to express and experience pride in our own lives is through comparison. Where we're always thinking about our life, whatever comes, we're constantly comparing it to ourselves. And that may be in a really positive way, that may be like a kind of arrogant way, where I'm feeling good and better about myself than you. And it can also be kind of that self-loathing, I'm no good, thinking about myself. Because in both of those perspectives, I'm still at the center of this thought. I'm still at the center of all this. And that's what pride is. C.S. Lewis has a fantastic line where he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. He says, once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. I don't want to be smart. I just want to be smarter. I don't need to be rich. I don't, that doesn't mean anything. I just want to be richer, more beautiful, more talented. Now, we've said this before from here. How do we kind of discern that? Well, a lot of times our emotions can be a really helpful check engine light. You know when that light comes on your car dashboard, you have no idea what it means. If you're like me, you just keep on driving. <laughs> what you're supposed to do is stop and get it checked. This could be something really destructive, or it could be some sensor which means absolutely nothing and it's not worth fixing. At least my experience. <laughs> but when that check engine light comes on, it's a warning. Something's wrong. And sometimes that's the way our emotions respond. When we respond in this exaggerated, disproportionate way, high, low, angry, you know, self kind of loathing, all the, something is at stake. And it's a check, your emotions can often serve as a check engine light, letting you know something is going wrong. For example, why do none of the children in my house know how to hang up a hand towel on the rack? You laugh, I don't. Um, the number of times I have found the hand towel in the sink with the sink still kind of partially on, just dripping, or in the trash can, or worse, on the grimy part of the toilet, you know the part I'm talking about. I find our towel there often. Now, I believe every kid should learn how to take care of their house and hang a towel up on the rack, but what's interesting is the number of times that I have exploded over that. This, there's something going on in me. Yes, they need to learn. <laughs> But my emotional response to a situation like that can show me something's not quite right with me. And it's not about a hand towel. How dare these kids not understand that something this small needs to be followed to the T. There is a way to do this, and it needs to be done this way. It starts to actually reveal pride in my heart. Because in pride, there's no room for growth. There's no room for error, because it must be done my way. Thus saith the king and you better do your thing or off comes your head. In some sense, every single expression of sin has its roots firmly planted in the soil of pride. Because if sin is rebellion against God, it starts with the belief that I would do a better job than God himself. I should be able to decide what is right and wrong, good and evil, what should be done and what should not be done. I want to be sovereign. I want to be in control. It's a sin that is as old as humanity is itself. And my prayer is that as we walk through this passage this morning, 
that the Lord would graciously and gently just reveal to us today and throughout the rest of this week and the rest of our lives, gently reveal the places where the roots of pride are deeply entrenched in our hearts. And this morning, that we might be able to hear the word of the Lord this morning and allow the gospel to speak to our lives and to our hearts. Because the more we see our pride in ourselves, shown through our words, through our actions, the more grateful you will be for the truths that are in Daniel 4. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them, if you would, to Daniel 4. If you have your scripture journals, page 26. Um, if you do not, do not have a scripture journal and you don't know what I'm talking about, some people have got these little booklets, you can see them. We've got a handful out in the back. You're welcome to grab one of those as a gift uh, to you. Uh, just has the, the scripture that we're going to walk through for this series. Uh, and if we run out, there's an order that's coming in on Wednesday because we ran out. Uh, most of them, there's a few back there still. But this entire book of Daniel is designed to help us understand and be reminded that God reigns throughout all of history. In every aspect, from the kings and the nations of this world down to the smallest details of our lives, that God is the one who reigns and our lives ought to reflect that with a humble trust and confidence in our God. And today's passage is an invitation to expressly humble ourselves before the Lord, to repent of our pride, to turn away from our pride, which is what repent means, to turn away from that, not simply to acknowledge, but to allow our lives to reflect that. And to refuse to live as if God is not the one who reigns that I am. We want to turn away from that. And by God's grace, may we do that today. You're going to be invited today to get off the throne of your own life and to surrender that seat to the one who rightly belongs there. And you're going to have that opportunity multiple times a day for the rest of your life. So this morning, we only read so far a portion of this chapter, but really the entire chapter tells the full story of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, humiliation. Uh, and it kind of runs in four, four chunks here. We see the dream, we see the interpretation, the humiliation, and the restoration. Those are the four pieces of the story that we're going to progress through. Uh, and each of those four, or all of those four, the dream, the interpretation, the humiliation and then the restoration are all bookended by this beautiful expression of praise and worship from one of the most unlikely people. We didn't tell you early on, but you know the verse we just are working to memorize that we recited together. Did you know that was penned by Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't that cool? This is one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible because the whole chapter is penned by a pagan king. You would look at that and go, well, he's not allowed to write the Bible. We've got certain rules on that, and that he doesn't quite fit. And yet, we're going to see that the Lord, no one is beyond the Lord's reach this morning. Nebuchadnezzar be begins by saying in verse 2 and 3, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This is personal for him. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom, let me just pause, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You think, if, you, if, if that doesn't like stun you that, that these words are coming from Nebuchadnezzar, remember back in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the guy who came, besieged Jerusalem, did all sorts of terrible, horrendous things to the people of God, pillaged the temple of all the sacred vessels that God had created for the worship of himself, and took him back to his homeland and eventually burned the temple with fire. 
What happened to bring a man of that level of arrogance and pride and power to a place where he acknowledges that the Lord's dominion rules, that hits his kingdom that endures forever? It started with a dream that scared the pants off of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read that just briefly together. Look at verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar begins, he's telling this dream, and he says, behold, there's a tree. I'm going to kind of read and summarize, skip, so kind of just jump with me as we go through this. There's a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the whole earth. The leaves were beautiful. The fruit was abundant. Food for everyone. The beasts and the birds lived and took shelter under it. All flesh was fed from it. But then there's a vision that he sees. And in, the, in this vision, as he lay in his bed, he says, a watcher, a holy one, an angel, came down from heaven and proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts and the birds, let them flee. But leave, verse 15, the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and let the ten, amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth, and let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the dream that, that, that terrifies Nebuchadnezzar, and he doesn't know how to interpret it. You can kind of hear chapter 2, another scenario where Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream that he doesn't understand. And Daniel with the Lord's guidance, gives an interpretation for uh, this dream. Verse 22 says, It's you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Verse 24, he says, This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king that you should be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Now, at the start of this dream, as Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this and he's being told, you're a great tree, that's really good for a king's ego. Because throughout all of ancient time, trees were associated with the divine. They were the source of food. and You could do so many things with it. You would hide under their protection. You get food from it. It, it. You could use it to build houses. But not just that. Trees were not, in the Middle East, as, as common as they are. They're not the same. You, don't, you don't, don't necessarily picture, like, the Great Northwest or the, 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 the national parks or even some of the areas we have, these forests. Trees would have been much more sacred and special, especially high trees either trees that are on top of mountains or really tall ones. Throughout all of ancient history, these are regarded as places where heaven and earth meet. And they're often connected with the kings who are often, in different cultures, seen as more than human, partially divine. And so Nebuchadnezzar would have loved hearing, you, O king, are this great tree. Your dominion rules over all. Everyone is fed by you. This is awesome, strong. This isn't a weak, pitiful tree. This is a permanent, majestic, beautiful tree. And that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. Reminds me again of his other dream where he, in chapter 2, is the head of gold on this statue. Well, out of the gold, silver, bronze, clay, all those things, I'll take gold. 
I'll take top. But Daniel had to deliver some really hard news. You're the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to be chopped down. Why this word of judgment? Simple answer is pride. Look at verse 27. Daniel gives some counsel to the king. He says, therefore, king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was demonstrated in his practicing unrighteousness. His, his ignorance, his, his disobedience to the ways of the Lord. And in particularly highlighted him not showing mercy to the needy and the oppressed. And Daniel's call is, King, humble yourself. You see, throughout the entirety of Scripture, God is patient and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And Daniel's pleading with Nebuchadnezzar, he may relent. And yet, not even this threat of judgment actually does its work with Nebuchadnezzar. But before we move on to what happens next, I want us to just pause and recognize that even in this judgment, there is mercy, and we see the character and kindness of God even towards someone like Nebuchadnezzar. See, we skipped over. We didn't finish reading some of these verses. Look at verse 17 or verse 25. They're the same quotes. It explains exactly what God's desired outcome is of this judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. To the end, verse 17, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of, of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. In, order, in other words, the Lord is not simply out to educate Nebuchadnezzar, but to transform him. His desired outcome is that Nebuchadnezzar would actually come back in line with reality. And that can't be done simply through mental experience has to be a transformation from within because pride's not simply an acknowledgement issue but it's a heart posture issue you and I don't need to be taught the dangers of pride we know it's destructive we need to be transformed it's not simply punishment that God is doling out to Nebuchadnezzar excuse me it's an invitation to humble himself, to recognize with his words and his actions that God is actually the one who reigns, that he is in control, and to allow his life to reflect humble obedience and submission to the Lord and his commands. And even in this word of judgment, there's hope. Notice he doesn't say, call a local tree service and grind that stump out all the way, pull it right out of the ground, it's gone. What's he say? Verse 26 and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. And Daniel's interpretation of that is, your kingdom shall be confirmed. It'll be restored, reestablished for you from the time when you acknowledge that heaven rules. See, God is giving room for repentance. Even in judgment, even in his humbling of an arrogant, prideful man, there is mercy. In fact, this is the third invitation. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 show God's consistent pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter, chapter 2, his first dream, 
hey, Nebuchadnezzar, your, your kingdom's temporary. Remember that gold head you were? Remember what happens to that when the stone comes and hits it? Disappears. Disintegrates. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, remember chapter 3? When, when you tried to, to kill three who would not bow the knee to your statue, to you, but refused it and only would bow to me, and you threw them in the fire trying to kill them? Remember, I actually hold life and death in my hands. And I was actually physically present with them in that moment. And chapter 4 here is this personal warning. God has been pursuing Nebuchadnezzar, and I just praise God that we have a God who pursues prideful sinners like Nebuchadnezzar and prideful sinners like me and prideful sinners like you. But in this passage, the intended, the warning does not have its intended effect. Verse 28 says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, verse 29, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Now, Nebuchadnezzar is on top of his palace. Kings did not put their palaces in the low valleys. Kings put their palaces on the highest hill because the elevation symbolized something. I'm the top dog. And he's not even in the basement of the top place. He climbs to the top of his roof and is looking out. And from that vantage point, the only thing he can do is look horizontal or down. And this is the thing. He'd have seen some amazing stuff. The hanging, Babylon, the hanging gardens of Babylon are widely known as one of the ancient, seven ancient wonders of the world. It was stunning. He made them for his wife because he wanted his wife from another country to be, feel more at home. I mean, he had that kind of wealth and power. The wall that surrounded Babylon, there's an ancient uh, historian, Herodotus, who tells us that it was wide enough that a chariot drawn by four horses could make a U-turn on the wall. That's power. That's strength. What are you going to do about that? You can't get through a wall that's that thick. I mean, he had, humanly speaking, every right to say these things. Except that when a man is proud and looking down, he has a hard time recognizing that there's anything above him. Because when our eyes are down in judgment on someone or something else, we often fail to recognize there's actually one that is above us. And that happens here, except as he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while, verse 31, the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. You can hear in Nebuchadnezzar's words an explicit pride. My majesty, I built, I'm the center. And the Lord brought about all that he promised that he warned Nebuchadnezzar of. Now, people have tried to figure out what in the world diagnosis do we give to Nebuchadnezzar here? <laughs> what happened to this man? In our pastor's meeting, Jin says that he went cuckoo. That was, that was kind of our internal description of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He went cuckoo. People with mental illness, is this what's called boanthropy, which is a psychological disorder where the sufferer believes he or she is a cow or an ox? Uh, 
quite honestly, we don't know, but can I, can I be honest with you? It doesn't really matter. Because the point of this is not to diagnose him, but to see from a theological standpoint that God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble, that he is the king who reigns. That though Nebuchadnezzar stood on the roof of his palace and thought he was the top dog, there was one above him. There was one greater than him. Pride is foolishness. There's not a single person on this earth that God cannot humble. As we see in verse 37, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And I think God is also trying to show us something else. He's trying to show us the beastly nature of pride. In other words, he allows Nebuchadnezzar to experience in his visible external way what has already taken place inside his heart. To explain what I mean, think back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 is God creating Adam and Eve and humanity in this whole world. He places Adam and Eve in this garden. They are naked and unashamed. They walk with God. They have no sin, nothing to separate them in, in intimate relationship with one another and with God. But they're tempted to take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God has deemed wrong. Will they humble themselves under that? Or will they, in arrogance, reach out their hand and take the fruit and decide for themselves, I'll take over this one, God, I got this. Let me decide whether this tree is good or not. And I deem it good, even though you deemed it evil. They pridefully try to assume the place that only God rightfully belongs. And we all know the story. They take the fruit, they eat. And yet God pursues them, inviting them to humble themselves before him. In chapter 3, verse 21 says, The Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, many will rightly point out that this could be kind of the, the principle of sacrificial substitutionary atonement, where an animal, it gets developed in the, in the law of Moses later, where an animal can die in the place of a human and cover over their sins until the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus, comes and removes that sin. But that doesn't explain why Adam and Eve had to wear the clothes. Why did they have to wear the clothes? You don't see that in the rest of the law, do you? You don't sacrifice and then put the animal skin on you. Why does God have them wear the clothes? And I think because he wants them to see that in their pride, they've actually become less than human. See, to be truly, fully human is to lift your eyes in humility before the true king. That Adam and Eve, that Nebuchadnezzar, that you and I are actually less than human. We're more beast-like, we're more animal-like when you think you are more than human. When you think you are the king of the universe, more than human, you actually become more animal-like. Their heart posture of pride is beastly, and both with Adam and Eve and with Nebuchadnezzar, he allows them to see that in a real physical way. until he's restored. Verse 34, at the end of this period of time, Nebuchadnezzar says, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And it's at that moment that the Lord restores Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, his humanity, and the kingdom to him. You see, pride is unrealistic self-appraisal. You're appraising yourself and it's unrealistic and it's not accurate. But what corrects pride is actually holy right God appraisal. 
understanding who he is and that we are under his reign. You see, there's no grand thing that takes place with Nebuchadnezzar, is there? His restoration didn't come because he was all of a sudden a good person, but it was because of grace, because he lifted his eyes to heaven in humble faith. Now, I want to know if this story reminds you of any movie that you've ever seen before. And the clue is, it's a Disney movie from 1991. It's a story of royalty, where a prince does not show mercy to an old widow, an old beggar woman in need of shelter. She's oppressed, and she needs help. And as a result of his hard heart, his body is transformed into a beast with long hair and sharp claws. And the whole movie is a quest for him to become human again. I often wonder if the writers of Disney's Beauty and the Beast were inspired by something in Daniel 4. But here's the difference between the message of Disney and the message of Scripture. See, in that Disney movie, The Beauty and the Beast, to become fully human again, to be restored, involves finding romantic love. That's what it means to be fully human. And the Bible offers a different solution because it has a different problem. The problem is not you need a spouse or someone to love you this way. But to be fully human means to lift your eyes in humble submission to the God of the universe. That's what restores Nebuchadnezzar to being fully human. It's not romantic love. It's humbly accepting our place as the created ones under in holy submission to the creator. And how do I know that's true? Because that's the story of Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. So not only does Jesus show us what the Father is like. Jesus says expressly, you want to know what the Father is like? Look at me. I will show you. I am the representation of God on this earth. But since he's fully man, he also shows us exactly what it looks like to be fully human. You see, Jesus was the king who was greater than any earthly king. He didn't just make one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He created the whole world. He didn't need to stand on the roof of his palace to view the ends of the earth. The earth was his footstool. He's the only one who actually could say, look what I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And yet this king, who being in very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't need to be humbled because there was no pride in his heart. But he rather willingly emptied and humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He took on flesh. The creator became part of his creation. And it didn't stop there. He allowed himself to be taken to the point of humiliation on the cross not because it was forced on him like it was Nebuchadnezzar, but because he willingly did it. Why? Why would Jesus humble himself in that way? Why would the God, the creator of this universe, humble himself to the point of death? To be an example for us to follow? I mean, yes, but more. If you read the story of Jesus and you look and go, oh, Jesus humbled himself, therefore I should humble myself, you've only got a very small piece of the picture. Because if Jesus is just our example, then you still have to copy his humility. How's that working out? 
Because pride is not an intellectual problem. It's not just an example. We don't just need an example to follow. It's that you and I need to be transformed. We need to be freed from ourselves. And that's exactly why Jesus came. To be a source of grace and a source of transformation for those of us, all of us, who are enslaved to our pride, who are enslaved to thinking that I would be a better God than anyone else and anyone, including God. From those of us who are entrapped in our delusion that the world should revolve around me, and if it did, it would be better. See, you and I were born under the control of the prince of this world who is the father of pride. And the New Testament tells us that the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the work of the devil and to free you from your pride and the insistence that others serve us. And Jesus does that willingly out of love. He has taken care of, he has promised to take care of every single need that you have. You realize that's the source of pride is there's this concern. Well, if things aren't done my way, who's going to look out for me? If I don't fight for me, who's going to fight for me? And Jesus goes, I already have. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I have taken your sin and pulled it as far away as the east is from the west, which are infinite opposing directions. I have made you my children. You lack nothing. What do you need that Christ has not provided for you? And the answer is nothing. And as a result of his voluntary humility and sacrifice, he is exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that one day every single knee, every single person will bow the knee to King Jesus. The question is, will you learn from Nebuchadnezzar today and will you do that with joy? Will you come in line with reality today? And you're going to have to do it again tomorrow. You see, the gospel destroys pride because it tells you that you were so lost that Jesus had to die to rescue you. We're so small, we can't even save ourselves, much, much less be the center of the universe. But in the gospel, you're reminded that you are so loved that he would humble himself to the point of death to rescue you. And the invitation is to lift your eyes off of yourself and to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And life in Jesus is marked by freedom. You're now free to look to the needs of others because Jesus has got you. You are free to not need to be acknowledged because Jesus sees you. You are free to not have to pretend that you're in control because you serve a God who is. You're free to be needy. You're free to be grateful. And the reality is the more you and I taste the goodness of God, our hearts will burst out in praise like Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, verse 37, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And these are the last words that are recorded in the scripture of King Nebuchadnezzar, but I believe they will not be the last words that you and I hear from him. Because of this expression of surrender, I believe we will stand before the rightful king one day, side by side with King Nebuchadnezzar, giving praise and honor and glory to King Jesus. The Lord has humbled and restored the heart of an unlikely king, which means there's hope for you today. So will you humble yourself? 
Will you do this over and over and over again when you feel the sneakiness of pride, when the Lord gently and graciously reveals to you, when he maybe even has to humble you a little bit? Will you take that as an invitation to turn in faith to him and say, Lord, I humble myself before you to lift your eyes to the king who reigns over all and by his grace allow that to affect the way that we live. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 5. Read that this week. You'll notice there's a lot of similarities between this chapter and chapter 5. Pay attention to those similarities and then see what the differences are. Look forward to coming back together next week. Let's pray. Father, you are the king. You reign over all. We do not. We confess our sin of pride, that we think too often, too much, and too long about ourselves. Help us think much of you. Remind us that you have promised to take care of us and that you will meet all of our needs. Give us freedom then and eyes to see the needs of others. Lord, sometimes denying ourselves and, and, and resisting pride feels like it's going to kill us. And in that moment, we get to participate in your suffering and trust that there's life, that, that when we humble ourselves before you, you will exalt us in the right time. May we do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count our others as more important than ourselves. May we not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others, so that the world around might know that you are God. We love you, we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.